case I start sweating. It is not lost on me, the honor that it is to open God's word in his house, especially here at East White Oak Bible Church, where two men have stood the whole time we've been here and brought the word of God. East White Oak Bible Church takes very seriously God's word, eh? Susan and I moved here from South Carolina in 2005, April, April 4th. You know, when you leave South Carolina to go to Illinois, you remember the day. (laughs) And uh, we had been married eight years. It's the longest either of us had lived anywhere. Only house we knew as a married couple, we left that yard that Monday morning and uh, headed up to be near Rod and Vera. Uh, Decided to go to their church to visit. Fell in love. You guys, uh, you know, you hold the word of God high. And missions high. I don't know if you know, but I kind of like missions. And, uh, you know, 16 years now. This is the longest we've ever lived anywhere by double. And now we're leaving. You're actually sending us away. What'd I do, man? Come on. You are launching us as missionaries from East White Oak Bible Church. You may remember this past November in our missions conference, Jim Roberts was here, uh, pilot with uh, Wycliffe, and then later on administration and then executive uh, leadership team for years at, uh, at SIL Wycliffe. And now he, is, he and Paul are stepping out into R&D, learning new ways to get language into the world, the Bible. And so, but he was here, he was telling us the story of his life, right? And he grew up in the UP and he became a Christian when he was in high school. Nothing to do with God until that point. And then he found himself sharing the gospel with a friend of his. And he he was just thinking, how did that happen? You guys remember that? And then he went to Chicago when he was in school and in his apartment building, the way I'm remembering it was some people from older folks who were a part of the Soviet Union now living in Chicago. And he shared the gospel with them. And he was like, how did I get here? And then in Spanish, when he was down in Central America, I'm remembering Panama, but uh, how did I do that? And some of you guys who've known me for those 16 years, you're probably thinking the same thing. Jim's up here. How did he get up there? (laughs) That would be appropriate to think that for some of you. (laughs) How do we get here? Why would East White Oak Bible Church send Susan and I to uh, help the church in Tanzania as we bolt on together go to the unreached people groups in the world. You know, we were part of small groups now for pretty much from that first year. We've gotten to know some of you really well. ABF now, I think 13 years, if I'm not mistaken, with the crowd in here. And, uh, a lot, lot of time, a lot of breakfasts and lunches and coffees and hanging out, just, you know, living life together. And I worked for a couple of people here, so pray for those guys, man. I had to put up with that. Um, and we were at a small group back in that corner here on Friday night talking with, uh, with the families about what we're up to and um, just kind of saying, you know, I could almost tell the story in two different ways. Uh, in one way, you know, this idea of uh, you take a, a twig or a piece of wood and you drop it in the creek or the stream and you just watch it flow. And of course, it's going by that big tree and then around that rock 
of course we're going to Tanzania and teach Bible and theology and missions at NASA Theological College, this is East White Oak. We've seen this coming. Of course we're going, the twig in the stream. Um, it, it wasn't at all that way in real time <laughs> for us. The other way to tell it would be those of you who knew me when I was 16 years younger and uh, unsettled, struggling in all kinds of ways. How'd that guy get here, right? So, um, probably you would all remember in 2015, well, maybe not, but Ron Miller and Matt Hughes and I went to Tanzania on one of our trips. Being part of the missions team for 15 years has been just amazing. You know, one of the things we try to do is get, get you out of your comfort zone, out, out past your own walls, get to the world, see it, you get changed, you really do. Um, and so one of those trips, I remember Trey, uh, just thinking about him, we were in 2010 with Mark Ball and Susan and I in New Guinea. Um, the hike down that hill was fun. Not. Uh, and then in 2015, I'm hanging out with these students at NTC, and they're, wanting, they're asking rich questions about the Bible. And I'm just having a blast, you know, with what I got, ABF guy, and uh, BSF years. God had given me something. And then, um, you know, talking with the professors there, spending the preaching in a church in Chicago. Actually, if we had you show hands, several of you have actually been where we're going. That's really cool, man, for me. So come back. Susan's going to have some good food there for you. Um, come back. When I came back home from there, I thought, you know, I need to be better trained at this. That was fun, but I need better training. Processed that. Susan and I processed that for a bit. Went to Scott Burkle and other people, Ron, and other friends here in the room. And went to Dallas Seminary <laughs> at like 45 or something like that. Not a lot of people start that late, but some of us take a while. Um, Everyone should go to just like seminary, seriously. That was just rich. Um, you know, uh, one of the marks that I really hope becomes true of you and me is that the professors there, the people we've known from there, you remember Oscar and Maria Campos, they love. I mean, they love well. Uh, they, don't, they don't knowledge you first. They love you first. And out of the knowledge... The knowledge comes out of that love, and that's just something I felt with all the professors there. Deep, deep thinking, I was taught well. Their motto is teach truth, love well. May that be us, right? I learned so much. I gotta give some credit here. Like, I'll do the bibliography before we do the talk. Um, so many people, I'm stealing a lot of stuff from all these professors. Uh, Mark Bailey was the president of Dallas for 20 years. He just retired last year. And uh, in our Gospels class, he would say, uh, you know, most of my stuff I, I've stolen from other thieves. <laughs> I mean, this stuff's been around 2,000 years. We've got a lot of people who've written a lot. There's a, this knowledge isn't new, and yet we can eat it daily, fresh, right? So, uh, also, Michael Spiegel, Dr. Michael Spiegel, Dr. Ron Allen, I'm following him a lot here. He taught Psalms and he taught Ephesians. And then, of course, our own pastors here. And, Chuck Swindoll, we don't call him doctor, we call him Chuck. He just kind of hangs with us. He's in here too. Um, I learned a lot. And so I want to ask this at the beginning. Is there something you've learned kind of recently? You've really learned something, aha kind of thing. And what I mean is you've been a Christian for a while. Um, you've known this stuff. And then some new angle, some new aspect, some glimpse. 
and you got something new now that you didn't really catch the right, the right way or as thoroughly before. Have you done that? Has that happened? We're going to try to do that here today. I'm going to try to talk about, we're going to do Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, those verses. We're going to try a new perspective, and I know already some of you in here are going to go, a new perspective, wait a minute, what else, hey, are you going to do some heresy? Thank you, Jesse Baird. He always keeps me straight that way. Um, so let's not take some brand new philosophy here, but let's look at the word slightly differently, at least for me. In that way, you know, it's a good thing when you say, let's make sure we're getting the word right. You're like the church in Ephesus. That's who we're, we're going to look at. Paul wrote to these guys who kept the word strong all the way, right? And so uh, you're not going to let false teachers, Paul, Paul challenged them, don't let false teachers hear. He did that in Miletus, way before he wrote this. And then you remember about 30 years after the church had been founded, this is written. 30 years. I mean, think about it. 30 years, the church has been going. It's all over the Mediterranean now, and this is what we're going to read now. People who've already seen God showing his glory in the church all over the Mediterranean, and now we're going to read this thing. What would you write to the church 30 years into its explosive growth? So while we're looking at it, though, this, set, this uh, unique perspective for me anyway, um, I'd like you to have this question in your mind. It's about the church. Are you in awe of the church? I mean, you're in awe of God and awe of Jesus and awe of creation and in awe of the mountains, the, the galaxies. Are you in awe of the church? And I mean kind of, or really, are you truly in awe of the body of Christ? of the church. So have that in your head while we're reading this majestic sentence. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when you think of the church, what goes through your mind? It can be easy from messages about this passage to really get into the doctrine. I mean, there's so much doctrine in here. We're not gonna cover way too much time. And I've given a time limit today, so. I would love to dive into that. We can't do that. And I would recommend go back to The Church is Beautiful. It's a series Pastor Scott did. Walk through this, unpacked thickly. 
and you'll see all of the doctrine. And it's, uh, it's just, it's great. But um, do you see, the question is, do you see the glory of God in the church? Um, scholars uh, often call this um, set of verses the thickest, the densest theology on God and salvation in the Bible. You probably have heard that from somewhere, but this is rich. These, these verses. Um, we're not going to be able to dive all down into that, but the whole letter itself, right? I don't know if you've thought about this, but God is the master communicator. When we say to the Bible sometimes, wow, I'm not sure the Bible's making much sense. Please know it's you. God is the master communicator, and we need to do the work of getting into all the riches that are there to be had. So in, in the mind of Paul, when he's talking about this, God is revealing the mystery of the church that you know this. The letter is basically, you know, in Corinth, you're writing about issues and problems. In Galatia, you're talking about not going down the road of legalism. And if Ephesus, there's not a problem that's being addressed in Ephesians. This is the display of this new mystery, the whole book. And it's basically, in the Old Testament, the world was intended to be able to see God by the nation of Israel. And now, all people in the nation of Israel, all Hebrews, all Jewish people, who believed in Jesus Christ and all Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ are made into one new man in Christ with him as the head. That's the mystery. You've heard it before. I mean, in some ways, you guys already know this whole thing, right? You could come up and teach it yourself. Um, so 30 years after Christ rose from the dead, the gospel is spread, and here we have this amazing display. We're not going to get into any of that, right? But I do need to talk for a second about the structure. So how do you approach the scripture? I don't know if you've recognized this, but as master communicator, God uses every genre of literature in the Bible to talk to us in poetry, in prose, history. There's legal documents in there. There's newspaper articles. There's all kinds of things in there. Then, and, and in the New Testament, this thing, then what is the genre here? It's an epistle. Epistle is just basically the Greek word for letter. And when you were a kid, you probably learned how to write a letter, you know, from this person to this person, this is the date. This is the format of a Greek letter. And so that's what's going on here. This, uh, this, as you look at this, don't look at it as history, look at it as a letter. And Leland Riken notes something about how you should be thinking when you're approaching a letter. The corresponding skills that they, the epistles, the corresponding skills that they require from the readers are the ability to determine the overall structure and think in paragraphs, following the logical flow of the ideas, to interpret figurative language and to be sensitive to the effects of this artistic patterning that you might see. That's the part I want to do today. Three to 14, the artistic patterning. What do you see? Now, this is Paul, right? He was trained in uh, Tarsus. I don't know if you know this, but there was the School of Athens, best school you can go to in the Roman Empire. Second best, Alexandria. Third, Tarsus. The guy went to the Ivy League and was amazing as a student. Okay, they didn't call it the Ivy League. They're probably Ivy Leagueus or something like that. But uh, there's a point where after graduating from there, he goes to learn the deepest Hebrew from Gamaliel, a hard, if anybody graduated, they were known as the best in that school. We're talking about a mind that can put something together. And so 
what I want you to catch here, and this is just fascinating, if you look at your Bible, look at the, how many periods do you see? I, in my version, there are five English sentences from verse three to verse 14. In Greek, Paul wrote verse three to 14, one sentence. <laughs> and you remember uh, Peter was talking one time in his letters, Paul, sometimes hard to understand, he, he must have had this one in mind, right? Uh, it's thick. So you have what scholars call the densest theology put into the longest sentence in Greek in the Bible. And actually some other scholars have mentioned this sentence is so complex and difficult, it might be the most difficult sentence in all of Greek literature. <laughs> so let's hang out and then figure it out ourselves this morning, right? So I wanna see just the majestic display going on here. One sentence. And just so you know, the rest of the, the, the chapter from 15 down to the end, one sentence. You have an introduction and two sentences. Ephesians 1, that's amazing. So uh, anyway, along with this being an epistle, and you check it in paragraphs, and you check it the form, along with this being deep doctrine, can you see the pattern? Walk with me here. The first line, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed? Blessed be? What does that sound like? Psalms. That's the way a lot of Psalms talk. And then look at verse six. To the praise of his glorious grace. And then verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then verse 14, to the praise of his glory. This one long sentence is broken into three sections and each section ends with to the praise of his glory. What's that like? Blessing, praise? This is a song. And when you look at the next sentence, you know the last part of the chapter, it's a prayer. He's opening up Ephesians with all this rich doctrine in a song and a prayer. I find that cool. Let's take a look at Psalm 103 for a second. You can turn there if you want, but it's just this verse. Blessed be the Lord, bless the Lord on my soul and everything within me, bless his holy name. You've heard this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, I gotta stop here for a second and talk about poetry <clears throat> in Hebrew. Um, Hebrew poetry is different than all the other ones. You remember when you learned Shakespeare, iambic pentameter? You see an iambic pentameter, you know that Shakespeare. You see this thing, and you know it's Hebrew. So what's the thing? There's two lines always that say one thing. The first line might say something, and the second line would be the exact opposite, an antithetical statement. And the two together are communicating one thought. Sometimes you might have the first line and the second line say the same thing but differently, so you have it kind of echoing. The first line might be the first part of the thought, the second line might be the second part of the thought, but you are to read the poetry of the Psalms as two lines coming to you with one thought. Okay, so I say that here to ask you a question. What does the word blessed mean? Uh, if you take this couplet concept, the word blessed in the Hebrew, like in Psalm 1, happy. But in this case, the other meaning that blessed could mean, in this sense, it means to do something. God does something for us. He blesses us. We do something for other people. We bless them. It's doing this good thing to another. So how can we, how do you and I, how do we bless God in this sense? We can be happy about what God did, but how do we bless God in the sense of we do something for God? This couplet helps us with that. 
right? It says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Give God something that he needs. O my soul, everything within me, bless his holy name. And the second line, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The one thought coming through here in this word, barach, that was my attempt at saying it like the Hebrew people do. Um, it means to acknowledge God, to enumerate or to count all the things he's done. You do something for God when you count out loud in front of him the things he's done for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you're about to hear in the rest of this sentence, are you thinking, wow, look what God has done for us. That's what the author is asking you to consider. You have entered into a worship song to praise God for what he's done. Speak well of, in the Greek, this is actually a eulogetos. You, anytime you put an E-U in front of the Greek word, it makes it bigger or makes it good. And then the word logos is the next one. So make a really good big word about God. So we look at the sections, three through 14. We look at the three breaks and we're gonna look, <clears throat> bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Three times in that one sentence, this word blessed. It's a hymnic, sort of a intense theology of the book coming out in a hymn. And he says in the heavenly places, Dr. Ron Allen says, people who have come to faith in Jesus have eternal life at the very moment of their faith. Eternal life, everlasting life. We have eternal life. So even though we're living out our lives here, our position is in the heavenly places. So let's look at the first section. What is the, what is the Father doing? Of all the things you could talk about what God the Father has done, what is he going to praise? Choosing us before the foundation of the world in him. But why? This is interesting that we should be holy and blameless. We're gonna to get to that in a little bit. We should be holy and blameless to the praise of his glory. What is the work of the Son? That's section seven through 12. And seriously, you gotta dive into this to really get this stuff, but. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Of all the things Jesus has done for us, to, the glory, to his glory be praise for redeeming us and forgiving our sins. And then this last section, you see this Trinitarian flow, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit doing? Paul uses this word sealed. That word sealed has with it uh, marked as authentic and genuine, not opened until it's delivered. These are things that go along with what the Holy Spirit has done in this process. So here we see the great work of the Father, the many things about the Son. We see the work of the Spirit. These are all things that, focus, that Paul focuses on in these opening words of the book. And now let's look at that again. To the praise of his glorious grace, verse six. To the praise of his glory, verse 12. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Right out of the Psalms. So we gotta hang out for a second on this word praise. What does that mean? Um, praise, then in, in the Hebrew, when you think of uh, looking at the title Psalms for all of those songs, in Hebrew, that word was tehillim. Korah, that word is halal. You guys recognize that word? Halal, hallelujah. Uh, the Psalms are an attempt 
in poetry with some meaning coming every two lines mostly to halal God, to with your voice from a guttural position, praise him. That's what the Psalms are. Not just poems, poems with the voice, with song. And then in the Greek word, the psalmoi, psalmos, uh, something in Greek that would have been something that's to be sung or spoken with instruments. So you put all this together and we have to singing to God out loud together about the glory that is his. Ephesians 3, 1, 3 to 14. So I want to check for a second, what does that feel like? So to you and I, we might not feel like that sometimes, but we're being called to catch it. Um, if you were a Hebrew back in the Old Testament times, what is one of the ways, what is one of the biggest things you feel? You feel the congregation coming together and singing out loud. There's all this stuff going on. Psalm 42 and 43, maybe just take a quick look at that. We're going to see when somebody can't do that. What did that feel like to them? You're probably familiar with this. Psalm 42 and 43 are together kind of one package. Um, if you go to verse five, you're gonna see this thing that's a theme that goes three times. Verse five, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. There's a longing here to do something, and I can't do it. I hope in God, I will praise him, my salvation and my God. Then we go to verse 11, Psalm 42, 11, same thing. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? We don't know why this person wasn't able to go into the congregation and sing, but do you feel it? Were you ever in a spot where you couldn't go into the congregation and sing recently? Uh, Hope in God, I shall praise him again, my salvation and my God. 43 verse five, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So that's three times that sets up the section of this one Psalm. I want you to go back to verse four and 42 and see how this thing started. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, and you can imagine dry and empty, how I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Oh, how I wish that. Why am I cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Praise is song. So, next time Pastor Scott gets up to read, one, three through 14, sing it with them while, I'm kidding. Maybe that wouldn't work in our culture. But do you get what's being asked here? Do you sing about this thing that's called by many the richest, infusion of Trinitarian salvation in the Bible. So two other observations we wanna hang out on real quick. Um, you, so one of the things you look for is patterns, right? And so we've seen the pattern of the, to the glory, of, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. In Christ comes up a lot in these verses, in this one sentence. So let's look at verse three. Who has blessed us in Christ? Four, he chose us. In him, six, he has blessed us in the beloved. Seven, in him, we have redemption. Nine, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. 10, to unite all things in him. 11, in him, 
we have obtained an inheritance. 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ. 13, in him also you were sealed. 13, you believed in him. That's the most repetition in there. So we're supposed to praise Christ and all of the things we get when we look at the doctrine of salvation, we think, wow, he saved us. Wow, he's covered my sins. Wow, he's made us part of the body. Wow, he's sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Everything you get in salvation is only because the Father chose in him to make you alive in him. I hope you don't, I hope you don't think this thing. I, I think we sometimes can do this. Yeah, I follow Christ. I go to church. In church, you're made in him. Church, body of Christ, you don't go to church, you are in him if you are made alive in him, in church. Do you see the glory of the church? So I wanna just read those last verses. You can just hang, listen, feel it. Um, those last verses that are the prayer, remember this is a praise. I want you to hear the prayer he prays and the very end of it. We're gonna start in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give you thanks, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having eyes in your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is a living spiritual body made of every person who's united by faith through the Holy Spirit to the resurrected Son of God who ascended and is now at the right hand of the Father. That's the church. What do you think of the church? We gotta talk about the word church then. This is the other term we gotta talk about. It's only two times in the New Testament that the actual word that makes church come to us, kuriakos, but that comes both times in sentences relating to something that belongs to the Lord, belonging to the Lord. The church belongs to the Lord. But in the New Testament, when you read the word church, it's almost always coming at you from the word ecclesia. You've heard of that? Um, what's your ecclesiology? We have lots of fun debates about that. Ecclesia, and in Greek, what that meant was assembly. It's used of other things. When uh, there was that riot that went on in Ephesus, and the magistrate said, you're in danger of being a false assembly. It's a false ecclesia. You are assembling to get your ecclesiaing potentially wrongly if you don't do this right. This word in Greek means a symbol. So, belonging to the Lord and assembling the church. 
the assembly of people who belong to Christ and gather together in this place. What do you think of the church? Now we've got to come to this word glory. That's the other word that kind of hangs out in our question of worship here. Um, Paul has shown not only the masterful display of the rich Trinitarian salvation doctrine, which you can get into a lot, not only has he delivered it to us in praise, high praise, calling us to worship, you, uh, you have to use your voice to use the word praise. Um, and it's in the tradition of the Psalms, but each section is praising what? The glory, God's glory, the glory of his grace, his glory. When you think of the word glory, what comes to mind? In the South, uh, they have the saying, you might have it up here too, but when, an, when a person passes away, they say, yeah, they've gone to glory. Kind of like is the, the name on the door you go through when you die. <laughs> glory is just that, that thing, that place we don't really know. It's a place. Yeah, he's in glory now. Um, that's clearly not what's being talked about here, but how do we think of glory? Well, let's look at the Bible. It's ha- how does it? Chavod, K-A-B-O-D is a Hebrew word, chavod. 376 times this is used in the Old Testament. Very prolific word. Chavod means heavy, weighty. Heavy with honor, weighty with splendor. And when you talk of it about a God, then it is heavy in his splendor and in his majesty and his honored status. When you think of glory of God, do you think of heavy settling in and weighty? You think of the people of Israel when they were outside, the, out in the wilderness looking up at the mountain and God descended onto the mountain and it shook and flames heavy, weighty. Have that in your mind when you think of the glory of God. Leviticus 10.3, I will show myself holy among those who are near me. And before all of the people, I will be glorified. God. Seen. I've been doing something since I graduated in December, so I've been kind of catching up on our culture lately and uh, listening to some different debates of people in our culture who are kind of slamming the church, religion, it's old. There's a crowd of people who have gone from just sort of agnostic to atheist. There's a group now that call themselves self-labeled anti-theists. So I've been listening to them in some debates. It's been interesting to just hear where our culture is going. And, um, and there's this other guy, I'm pretty sure he's not a Christian, but he's a psychologist. And these other guys are anti-theists. And he's like, no, 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 we need religion. Religion helped us. Religion helps our psychology be able to evolve correctly into, you know, great things. Uh, No, we need to kill religion. We need to get it out of here. It's messing with our scientific approach. No, we need to keep religion. It's a really good thing. It helps us get psychologically stronger. Neither of them, the glory of God. One of them was asked in a different scenario. um, When you get to heaven, actually it was a friend of his, Christopher Hitchens, when you get to heaven and you see God, what are you going to say to him? I don't know if you've heard this before, but he says, why didn't you make yourself obvious? I will show myself holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Seen in the world, heavy, weighty, filled with honor and significance that can only belong to God. So how has he done that? Let's look at a couple of things. You can just 
hang back and let it flow. God showed up in the temple in Exodus in the past. And then he's going to show up in the temple in the future. And Ezekiel writes about that. So Exodus, here's what it says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Can't go in there. Too full of the way to the glory of God. Ezekiel, he's seeing what's going to happen when Christ comes back. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like, have you ever been to Niagara Falls or something like that? You can't hear yourself, the rushing waters, the glory was coming and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory and the vision I saw just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kibar Canal and I fell on my face and the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court and behold, glory of the Lord filled the temple. And then Jesus comes, and Daniel's predicting it. Uh, we don't have time. I'm probably going to run out of time here. John 1 talks about it. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Skip to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. This glory that frightened the nation of Israel on the mountain, this glory that filled the temple so much that Moses couldn't get in there, came in Christ. <laughs> there is a new creation gone on in Christ, the glory of God in him. And did you see all those things about you? In him, in him, in him. All right, so check this out. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, we want to see one more glimpse at how God sees what's happened here. Long ago, first four verses, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days here, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. <laughs> After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And now what did that guy do? You don't even want to say the word guy. What did the man in whom the fullness of the glory of God existed. What did he do when he prayed as the son to the father about you and I? In verse 22 of John 17, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them even as you loved me. Father, I also desire this, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me in the heavenlies is what he's got in mind there. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then this last verse, you go back to Isaiah 6 and you see this temple. Uh, we see this, this, the throne room where God is and these angels just going around singing, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, the earth is filled with his glory. Why didn't you make yourself obvious? Filled with his glory. Now I want us to take a step back personally and just walk into what this glory could feel like to you and I. Isaiah 42.5, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with another. But a minute ago, we heard him pray to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. God of the Old Testament, who will not share his glory with another, had always in mind to be the glory even of our salvation and to bring us, not without in any way diminishing his glory and without any way taking glory onto ourselves. We have been brought by salvation, not just the redemption, not just the forgiveness of sins, but we get to engage in this divine nature that's talked about in First Peter, Second Peter. We get to partakers of the divine nature and that glory. So this is a little bit of a long quote, and Chuck Swindoll, um, he, he, uh, he delivered it. Excellent speaker. So I'm gonna try to pause, kinda like he paused, but just listen to this. It's from Oz Guinness about how we might deal with this kind of thing. God whispers in a hundred ways, you are chosen, you are gifted, you are special. God says that in a hundred ways. Now let those things sink in for longer than the few precious moments and inevitably you're gonna hear another voice. Honeyed, sweet, yes. You really are chosen. Oh, and so gifted. And very, very special. All too soon, if you are anything like most of us, you will find yourself saying in response to the devil's echo of what God has done, to yourself only, of course, never out loud. <laughs> you know, I'm chosen. I am gifted. I really must be special. And before you know it, 
the wonder of this great calling has descended into the horror of conceit. Holiness is the evidence of absolute conformity with and devotion to the glory of God. If God's holiness is the essential attribute of his character, then to fulfill our mandate to display God's glory that he has given us, we must be holy as he is. You guys might remember our friend Ramesh Richard. Ramesh Richard says, glory is how God looks through me. And holy is how much I look like God. How well do you see God? You know, this church in Ephesus, um, in Acts 20, you can read the report where Paul's leaving the Ephesian elders in Miletus, 57 AD. Beware of evil teachers from without and of professing believers within who would teach perverse things, 57 AD. And then about 30 years later, actually no, a few years later after that, not 30, 10 or so, maybe not even that much, whoops. A few years later, he wrote this magnificent letter to these people who are holding the doctrine well and keeping the heresy out. And he writes, deep theology in the form of worship and praise. They could get it, they understood the doctrine. And 30 years after this letter was written, Jesus himself, through John, wrote this letter to the same church, 30 years later. Revelation 2, one through four, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You can go back to chapter one. It explains that. It's Jesus walking among these seven churches. And uh, here's what he says to them. I know your works in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But... I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. I'm gonna do a bit of a quote here from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. Think of us, a house that loves the word, has been through this doctrine, has learned it's also a praise. We're still thinking a bit about glory, Christ in us. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that the, to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised by, the, by God in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling around about drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child, and you just picture London, the streets of London, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. As Susan and I have been preparing to say our goodbyes to you guys, you have given us such a great display in many, in many various ways, right, of what the church can be like. It's been overwhelming to us. But I have a question for East White Oak Bible Church. You call this your church. You love the word. You're sending us to bring the depth of the word to others. Have you lost your first love? Don't let that be. Do you love, and I mean do you really love, unshakable love, do you love your Savior's body? The church. Not just some of the people in the church that you kind of like, some of them. And not just when it's convenient or when you feel like you're getting something out of it. Do you see the glory of the church? Do not fall for too low of a view of what your leaders here are giving you. Rooted in Scripture. Growing in Christ. Making disciples. Engaged in the body of our Savior and Lord. Father, I thank you so much for the pleasure it is to study your word. I ask that you would make anything that was said here land the way you intended it for everyone. I thank you for this loving body and how much we are excited to be able to represent them in Tanzania. We will miss this place. Would it be said of us as we go and of them as we leave that this is a house where the world can see your glory has settled in. In the great name of Jesus, I pray.